Chapter 6 of The Track of the Typhoon by William Washburn Nutting. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Alan Dove. Chapter 6 Across the Channel to Brittany. Typhoon had remained at her moorings during her entire stay at Cowes. While she had stood up well under the drubbing of her run across the Atlantic, which was really her trial trip, there were a number of minor repairs to be made before taking her to sea again. You will remember that a day or two before reaching the Scilly Islands, we had come near losing our mizzenmast. Due to the shock of a jibe, the seizing had slipped down the mizzen shrouds, which are in one piece, to the side, and this opened up the eye and allowed all the strain to come on the shoulder cleat, which had carried away. New cleats had to be fashioned and mortised into the mizzen head, and the shrouds had to be resized in a manner that would prevent a recurrence of the trouble. A strop had to be made for the main boom to replace the temporary one Casey had rigged up when the boom traveler carried away in mid-Atlantic. In a number of places where the shrouds chafed the mainsail and mizzen, the stitching had worn through, necessitating a day's work with the palm and needle, and there were other trifling things, unimportant in themselves, that took what time our hospitable friends would allow us. Then there was the motor. Jim took it down completely, and after this major operation, the vital parts lay strewn all over the cabin floor. Among other little troubles, we found that in some way water had worked into the cylinder, and the rings were frozen in their grooves. I don't know just how this happened, as our exhaust line runs out of the deck and is kept plugged when the motor is not running. When the job of reassembling the motor had been completed, still laboring under the delusion that we needed very high air pressure in order to start successfully, we took the air tank to the J.S. White shops to have it charged with air compressor. We didn't realize then, what we found out later on, that the motor will start on as low as 100 pounds of air if everything is right. We imagined we wanted about 300 pounds in order to make sure of starting without using the blowtorch, but we split the tank before this was reached. After welding it, we tried it again and split it a second time. Welding it again, we finally got 200 pounds and went back and wasted it in a futile effort to start. When we turned on the starting lever, there was no snappy response, and it seemed as if something were obstructing the airline. Taking down the air connections to the cylinder again, we found a certain mushroom valve, the function of which we were unable to fathom unless it was placed there to prevent too great a rush of gas to the air tank when charging the latter from motor compression. At any rate, we took it out and thereafter had little difficulty in starting with even 100 pounds, although we noticed that to prevent hammering it was necessary to exercise care in opening the charging handle when the starting air was low. From then on, when for any reason we lost our air pressure, we had no difficulty in getting it back by means of the hand pump that was supplied with the motor. When we arrived at Cowes, we still had about half the food with which we had started, and, except for a couple of hams and a strip of bacon that had become insubordinate and had to be made to walk the plank, the food was still in good condition. Anticipating a stop on the French coast and another in Spain, we took on only a small supply of such things as fresh bread and tinned milk, meats, and fruits. The water in the main tank had held out well and had kept in perfect condition. In fact, although we used the main supply for washing as well as cooking and drinking, it had not been necessary to tap the water breakers, six of which were lashed along the sides of the cockpit. Oak water breakers, I think, are much overestimated as a means of carrying fresh water. 
Ours had been filled a week or ten days before we sailed, and had been emptied and refilled several times, but even so the water was discolored with tannic acid and really unfit to use for any purpose except washing. I suppose it would be possible to correct this condition, possibly with soda, but we were not entirely free from it throughout the cruise, although later on we were able to use the water from the breakers for cooking and even for making tea and coffee. Feeling that we could depend upon the main water tank, we discarded two of the breakers at Cowes, and later on at the Azores knocked the head out of a third and used it as a pickle barrel for our salt pork and salt beef. F. E. Knight, in his books The Cruise of the Falcon and The Cruise of the Alert, speaks of the necessity of getting down to simple food when making long ocean cruises. While we came to this later on, we had not thus far realized the necessity. Our original stock of food had been remarkably complete and included a big supply of tinned beefsteak and onions, corned beef, vegetables, and fruit, and had such things been available later on, the problem of meals for the homeward cruise would have been simple. But fancy food of this kind, at the few places on the other side where it is available, is tremendously expensive, and I would advise anyone contemplating a long cruise to lay in a good supply of flour, potatoes, salt beef, salt pork, sea biscuits, and, in fact, the sort of thing that is carried on sailing ships that are not equipped with the cold storage facilities of our modern steamships. Before leaving England, there is one institution we must mention because I hope that sometime there will be such a one in our own country. This is the Royal Cruising Club, whose membership includes many of the real cruising yachtsmen of England. My friend, Mr. Claude Worth, the Vice Commodore, told me many interesting things about the activities of this organization and presented me with a number of the charts which it publishes. These charts cover much of the English coast, at least that part of it which is suitable for cruising, and also parts of the French coast. They are conveniently arranged in small sheets and of a scale about that of our own 1 to 80,000 scale U.S. Coast Survey charts, and they contain all the information required by a small boat, much of which is not shown on the regular Admiralty charts. At the outbreak of the war, the data compiled by the Royal Cruising Club was of inestimable value to the Admiralty, which, I believe, cooperates with the club to some extent in the work of preparing the charts. Why can't some such club be started on this side of the Atlantic? It was on Tuesday, August 31st, that we finally took leave of Cowes. The quaint town that had come to mean so much to us had sobered down again after its annual fling to drift placidly along for fifty weeks until the next regatta should stir it into life again. The English yachting season already was drawing to a close, the Britannica had gone into her winter quarters, and we began to realize that there were long miles ahead of us and that it was time to be on our way again. Had we started earlier, I had planned vaguely to cruise possibly as far as Dover or the Thames estuary and then cross the channel to the Belgian coast and visit Zeebrugge, where the vindictive and the gallant M.L.s wrote one of the most brilliant pages in naval history. From Zeebrugge I had thought of following down the French coast as far as Uchant, and from there taking a departure for Cape Ortegal or Cape Finistiere at the point of the Spanish peninsula. But Cowes, the Solent, Southampton Water, and the Hamble had proved fascinating and had held us too long. Besides, the English coast from the Isle of Wight to Dover is far less interesting to the yachtsmen than that section we had already passed from Land's End to Cowes. The coast of France, especially the Brittany coast, I had had a hankering to visit, 
and the quaint Channel Islands, Alderney, Guernsey, and Jersey, those little bits of the British Empire that lie nestled close to the Cape La Hague. It is a wicked coast, this coast of Brittany, broken and rock-strewn and therefore fascinating. But to get to New York before bad weather should set in meant direct courses and hard sailing and left no chance for exploring a coast that in itself is worth a season's cruise. And so we decided to make directly for Ushant, or some point on the mainland which would allow us a glimpse of Brittany without taking us far out of our track. By one o'clock of August 31st, everything was in readiness for the start. The Sea Scouts had come down in their rowing cutter to cheer their two comrades on their way, and Mr. Bruce Atkey and his children had come aboard for the run down the Solent. A little group of friends waved us farewell from the pontoon as we slipped our mooring and worked out into the harbor under motor power. Circling the fleet of yachts that had dwindled greatly since the big week, we chugged our stately way past the Royal London Yacht Club and the castle of the Royal Yacht Squadron, dipped our ensign, and headed down the Solent for the Needles. Halfway to Hearst Castle, we met an incoming pilot cutter under power. She whipped out a snappy bon voyage by semaphore, and Fox, who proved to be an expert with the code, shot back, many thanks. At 2.55 p.m., Yarmouth was abeam, and here the motor, that had been performing perfectly, slowed down and seemed unable to carry the load, although it picked up instantly when the clutch was thrown out. We were approaching the deep, narrow passage between Hearst Castle and Fort Norton. In fact, a fair tide was carrying us down at an alarming speed, and there was not wind enough to give us steerage way under sail. We cleared the kedge anchor, ready to let go, in the hope of picking up bottom in time to prevent being carried through the narrows with its mill-raised tide, and possibly onto the rocks that lie beyond. Examining the stuffing box, we found that it had heated due to the fact that the gland had been drawn up too snugly, and after this was backed off and the shaft and fittings had been cooled with water, the motor was started again, without even the necessity of a fuse, and thereafter maintained a constant 422 rpm. Shooting through the narrows with tide and motor power, we bent on to Totland Bay, threw out the clutch, and stood by while a boat from shore took off our passengers. As we drew out again and headed for the needles, we passed an inbound liner. The ship proved to be the old New York, and she must have known us, for as she passed, her ensign came down in salute. Months later in New York, I happened to meet a man by the name of Melville. During our conversation, it developed that he was the first officer of the New York and had been on the bridge and given the order to dip the ensign. The world, as somebody I believe has said before, is small after all. Threading the needles in broad daylight with a fair tide and motor power was not nearly so exciting as it had been that memorable night when Casey shot Typhoon through under full sail, and by four o'clock we were clear of this ticklish place and were again in open water. Outside we found a westerly breeze, which by six o'clock had freshened enough to warrant putting on sail. Under full sail and motor power we were able to hold a west-southwest course which is about southwest by west magnetic, for the deviation of our steering compass we found, by comparison with the spare one, to be about one point north on westerly and southwesterly headings. By 7.30 we were off St. Albans. The log registered 17 miles, and we concluded that the tide was still with us, for St. Albans Head is about 19 miles from the Needles. 
But the wind was dying, and we faced a night of chugging under power. Until the new members of the crew should be broken in, we decided to run four-hour watches with two men to the watch, and at eight o'clock Charles and I went below for a rest, while Dorset and Fox carried on till midnight. When he became familiar with the ship, I felt that Fox, who was the only other man besides myself who had had any previous cruising experience, would be able to act on his own initiative, and for this reason I put him and Dorset in one watch and took Charles in the other with me. This arrangement would enable us to carry on indefinitely in bad weather, and when things were quiet we could reduce the watches to two hours with one man on deck at a time. The last entry in the log for August 31st is 1045, full-rigged ship about two miles on port hand going our way, sails shining in the moonlight, hardly a breath of wind, oily swell, head tide since passing St. Albans. Wednesday, September 1st. Barograph high and rising slightly. No wind. Running under motor power. 1 a.m. Log 45.25 miles. 1.15. Breeze springing up from northwest. 1.50. Portland Bill light abeam. Four flashes every 20 seconds. 3.10. Engine slowed down. Picked up again when clutch was thrown out, but stopped when clutch was thrown in. Got Jim up, started motor, and pumped up air. This rest seemed to cure the difficulty, which may have been due to clogging or improper fuel adjustment. 4 o'clock. Log 61.00 miles. Stopped motor, turned out port watch. 5 o'clock. Breeze freshening. Course west-southwest. 8 o'clock. Wind dying. Log 68.75 miles. 8.30. Wind dead. 9.30. Northwest breeze springing up. 11 o'clock. Log 74.75 miles. Course west by south one-half south. 11.40. Wind heading us. Course southwest by west. 12 noon. Course southwest. Log 78.50 miles. 3.45 p.m. Changed course to southwest by west. Log 96.75. 4.45. Set up main backstay and mizzen forestay as wind is all we can stand under full sail. Log 102 miles. 5 o'clock. Took double reef in mainsail. 7 o'clock. Log 116.15 miles. Course west-southwest. All three of crew seasick. 8 o'clock. Took off mainsail entirely and lashed boom in the crutch. Stowed Charles and Fox, who seemed to be greatly perturbed over being sick, especially so soon after partaking of tinned peaches, his favorite fruit. Dorset feeling better. Nine o'clock. Got Jim up again at the wheel while I took off mizzen. Typhoon was doing nicely under full jib and mizzen, but really requires someone at the wheel, and I feel the need of a rest. Under jib alone, she will sail herself with wind abeam or abaft the beam. As there is considerable shipping, even in this part of the channel, hung out a riding light, and at 10 p.m. joined the invalids below. I figure we are midway between Start Point and the coast of France, and about 50 miles off land. 10.30. Wind north-northwest. Course west-southwest. Log 131 miles. Glass rising. Typhoon steering herself. All turned in. Thursday, September 2nd. Cloudy, wind northwest, barograph high and steady. All slept late while Typhoon sailed herself under jib alone. 4 a.m. 
Fox went on deck and reported glow of two lights below horizon off port bow. 6 a.m. Lights proved to be two lighthouses, one on a small island. 7 o'clock. WWN prepares breakfast of oatmeal and tea as crew are still a bit groggy. 10.30. Raised mizzen and steered southwest along French coast now plainly visible. The islands abeam seem to be Les Sept Îles, as nearly as we can judge from our small-scale chart. 11.30. Started motor to fetch point that makes out ahead of us. 12 noon. Log, 154.00 miles. 1.30 p.m. Changed course to west to clear outlying island, which seems to be Ile de Bats. Slow work bucking strong headwind and tide, and decide to put in instead of beating farther. 3.30. Ran through fleet of small fishing boats with red and some blue sails. These boats are practically uniform as to size and rig, about 25 to 30 feet in length, with tiny jib and mainsail double-reefed. One of these craft tried to overhaul us, man standing on bow like Maxfield Parrish's pirate, gesticulating madly and yelling, P-lot, P-lot, at the top of his voice, left him yelling astern and took a chance of getting through the rocks with lead line going constantly. Picked our way between two lighthouses on rocks, luffed up in the lee of one of them, and slid gently onto a mudflat. At low tide, the section we had come through looks like the Sierra Mountains, and Typhoon proved herself a sensible little ship in picking out the only available soft spot on which to go aground. Log 172 miles. As it is 15 miles from Cows to the Needles, where we streamed the log, we had covered 187 nautical miles. At last we had hit French soil, but whether the picturesque little town that lay across the rock-studded harbor was Saint-Paul-de-Léon or Roscoff, we were unable to tell from our chart. We are always getting into places for which we had no large-scale charts, and that fact recently was seized upon by one of our newspaper friends as proof that we were indeed amateur sailors. I should like to remind this man, however, that we carried more charts than an Atlantic liner, and if we had taken on large-scale sheets of all the sections of the European coast on which our sketchy itinerary might land us, we should have had little room for anything else. The only part of our itinerary that was adhered to strictly was the run to cows. From there on, as I already have explained, we had no very distinct plans, and, while we don't advise this sort of thing, the fact remains that there is great fascination in exploring unfamiliar coastlines armed solely with general charts. By studying the lay of the land, the range lights, and the other local aids to navigation, and by constant use of the lead, it is possible to get into the worst harbors, as we had proved on many occasions. But this sort of thing, of course, is not sensible yachting, and should never be attempted in bad weather except under motor power. When in doubt, better stay outside. Kedging off was not a difficult process, as the tide was rising, and to get the tender overboard to place the small kedge anchor and back Typhoon off with a windlass took but a few minutes. The motor, which we had allowed to run idly during this process, died for some unknown reason, and we lost our air pressure in an unsuccessful effort to start it again. While working on the motor, we had a bit of an accident. We had lighted the Primus stove, which is hung in gimbals under the bridge deck, and while opening the valve on the air tank, I knocked the stove out of the rack into a pile of kindling in the coal box. The burner broke off, releasing the kerosene under pressure and causing something of a conflagration, 
which was put out without difficulty with one of the pyrene guns. In the meantime, Fox had gone ashore to forage. Knowing no French, and lacking confidence in his ability to make himself understood by the sign language, he armed himself with a pencil and a paper plate on which he drew the items required for our dinner. In an hour he returned triumphantly, stone broke, but the proud possessor of four mackerel. He reported a fine protected little inner harbor back of a stone quay, and after an elaborate dinner we beat in under sail and moored at dusk at the very back door of what proved to be Roscoff, one of the quaintest of the coastal villages of Brittany. Already the quay was alive with Bretons in wooden sabots and picturesque tam-o'-shanters, vastly excited over the fact that a strange, rakish-looking craft, manned by a crew of mad foreigners, had come into their very midst without a pilot. One of the greatest fascinations that cruising holds for me is landfalls. The long passages in themselves sometimes are tiring and often are monotonous, but they serve to make keener the joy of dropping in out of the sea on some strange seafaring nook and fraternizing with its people, with whom one who loves the sea is bound to find much in common. It would have been difficult indeed to have struck upon a more delightful place than the one we had found totally by accident. For centuries, Brittany has withstood the onslaughts of modern civilization, and this picturesque corner of France still lives largely in its legendary past. Even the religion of the Bretons is colored with legend and superstition, and the costumes are those of another century. Everything in Roscoff is old. The stone buildings, constructed at a time when men built for permanency, are gray with age and weathered by the winds that blow in from the sea, and even the people give the impression of age. So far as the men are concerned, this impression is a reality, for Brittany, like the rest of France, gave all her young men to the defense of her country, and but few of them returned. One of the first of those to greet us on the quay was an Englishman by the name of Carnegie, who took me in tow for a stroll about town and a glass of vin rouge before turning in. Despite the hospitality of this man, who became our good friend, the first evening ashore was a melancholy experience. The unlighted streets were melancholy, the gray houses were melancholy, and the people themselves, though hospitable, seemed melancholy. We turned in that night with a depressed sort of feeling, for you see, we had not experienced Roscoff by daylight, and we did not realize what lay in store for us. End of chapter 6